Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Silver State of Birding podcast, where I, Ned Bowman, and your host, Alex Harper, talk about Nevada birds, birding, and bird science. As you heard in that soundscape recording that opened up the episode, we are currently recording from southeast Farallon Island, where I am stationed for two months conducting various wildlife surveys. This windswept rock is about 30 miles off the coast of San Francisco and technically within city limits. And we talk a bit more about what goes on out here and what kinds of critters I'm seeing. But I just came in from a shorebird survey where I found 52 black turnstone, nine black oyster catcher, two wimbrel, and a spotted sandpiper. And soon I will be heading up to the lighthouse to relieve my buddy Sam, who's currently up there. We take shifts staffing it constantly throughout the day looking for shark attacks this time of year as there is a great concentration here attracted to the elephant seals and sea lions and other pinnipeds around, which the island has developed an amount of fame for. So please forgive any errors, gaps, lags, uh, issues with the connection, as this is a remote field station and we have some Wi-Fi connection. And you may also hear my radio going off at times while my coworkers are alerting me to the fun birds that are showing up today. During this episode, Alex and I continue to speculate about what is going on with Nevada's birds, and we want to introduce this topic of eruption and disruption, where eruption can be thought of as things that uh, movements that the birds undergo related to things that they have evolved with, like cone crop shortages and and other things related to their biology. And you see this in a lot of winters with siskins, finches, red-breasted nuthatches, other things as well. But we want to compare this with the idea of disruption. So what factors are going on pushing these birds around that they have not evolved with, and they're having to figure out new strategies to deal with? So we hope you will enjoy diving into this with us later in the episode. During the episode, we also talk about some upcoming and ongoing community science events in the state of Nevada, as well as what Alex and I are looking forward to with the changing of the seasons. One of the community science projects we talk about is the Shorebird Survey, the Intermountain West Shorebird Survey, and at one point we discussed the usage of Carson Lake in northern Nevada by long-billed dowagers, and I went back and looked up those numbers and found that the high counts are as many as 100,000 long-billed dowagers using Carson Lake in a single day, which is the highest number recorded at any one time at any location in the world, so that's pretty remarkable stuff there. So without further ado, let's jump in. I hope you guys enjoy this fifth episode of The Silver State of Birding. Ned, long time no see. Um, what's going on, man? I'm I'm super stoked to talk to you today. I feel like a lot has happened in both of our lives since the last time we did this. And a lot of really interesting birds have shown up in the state since we last spoke. So there's a lot to catch up on, but I know... You've got some really interesting things to do today, so we got to keep it kind of brief. Where yet? Tell me about uh, what what's on your mind. Tell tell us where you're at, man. Like you're at one of the most <laughs> premier locations for observing interesting bird sightings anywhere in the in North America. Yeah, I am spending two months out here on Southeast Farallon Island. I am taking a little sabbatical from my real job and volunteering for the Point Blue Conservation Science. And I am uh, 
observing the sea out here, doing all kinds of surveys, witnessing all kinds of crazy songbird migration, shark attacks, whale movements. I mean, this is just a very cool place. It's a 95-acre windswept island. It's okay, a- where is it located? Uh, located oh yeah that's a, that's a good point i am 30 miles off the coast of california technically within san francisco city limits so yep just just west of san francisco and today we have excellent visibility and i can actually see the golden gate bridge and the city itself along with the marin headlands and mount tamalpais and another bunch of other cool california landmarks amazing um I have never been there. I probably never will. Uh, this is this is a location that I've known about for a while. It just has that type of reputation, and I remember being blown away the first time I heard about this uh, this group of islands off of San Francisco. Um, the combination of being able to see big seabird numbers, like some of the biggest seabird colonies in the Pacific, um, you know probably the southernmost large colonies for many species and the ability to see shark attacks, different pinnipeds out there. You have fur seals, California sea lions, elephant seals, and uh, great white sharks that are attracted to all of that activity. It's just a really amazing place to see all that. Plus the American species of birds that are lost, as well as the ability to potentially see something from Asia that uh, would have left Kamchatka or Japan and has been flying across parts of the Pacific um, and ends up there because it's the only landmass and the first one that they see and they can drop in. So it just like has all these wonderful things going for it. You're yeah, super- like you say, most people don't get out here. It's a restricted refuge where pretty much only fish and wildlife employees, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service employees of the refuge and or uh, Point Blue volunteers can actually step foot on the island and <laughs> stepping foot on the island is kind of a crazy process. I was explaining to you a little bit ago how I kind of flew in on a boat. <laughs> we have a crane that hoists our landing vessel up out of the sea to get people on and off the island. But um, so so there's that going for it. I had previously only seen the island on a boat trip and because of the massive seabird colony here. And it is in fact, the largest seabird colony outside of Alaska in in the US in the entire lower 48. There's just under 400,000 individuals of like 13 species nesting here. The bulk of which are common murres and Western gulls, but a number of Cassin's auklet and ashy storm petrel also nest here. Rhinoceros auklet nest here. Limited number of California gulls as well. But Did then, you mention MERS? Yeah, common MERS. That's the that's the dominant uh, nester of the seabirds. They estimate about 300,000 individuals during the nesting season here. And Pretty so, amazing place. Yeah, when I was uh, scrambling around on, on some rocks on one of my first days here chasing what, what turned out to be a black pole warbler, I was slipping and sliding on these rocks and I came back and commented to my coworkers that all the clay mud was caked to my boots and I couldn't get good footing. And they, uh, they, they informed me that that was actually myrrh guano that was caked onto my boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of smelled like that too. <laughs> wow. So it's, it's, 
it looks like clay like it's is it orange like it too no no it's that like gray slimy kind of clay like i thought it was oh, you know, from when when gross. nevada soil gets wet and you're walking around in that in that mud and it sticks to your boots like you feel your boots getting heavy in the in the mud there it was kind of wow. that, that kind of feeling and uh yeah that's super gross ned <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool man that's cool. And, uh, we've got a limited supply of fresh water, so our showers are limited, our laundry opportunities are limited. So we are we are all rather ripe here in this field house. <laughs> That's that that field job life in an area that surely smells like seal belches and bird poop and salt. Um, you just yes. gotta. You, you can't resist it, right? Like you just got to accept <laughs> that that's yep. your environment now and just you're going to be a part of it. Yep, you embrace it. Easier. But, uh -huh. but so the reason they've got us out here this time of year is because, well, not just the spectacle of land bird migration, but also the white sharks that are congregating here for all of the elephant seals. But there's some interesting dynamics with that that I'm learning about where the elephant seals are shifting their um, wintering or nesting areas, I guess is what they're, they're starting to do, starting to get courtship and breeding underway. But so they're shifting to areas with more sandy beaches. So there is less opportunity for the white sharks to predate the elephant seals, which is typically what they come here for. And so they're predating more and more sea lions, California and stellar sea lions. And so we have this lighthouse up on top of the island that's probably 500 or so feet above sea level. And we rotate two-hour shifts up there constantly on the lookout for predation events. And with the elephant seals, you can see those pretty readily. They've got this bright red blood. They're full of fat. They're greasy. They make this oil slick and they're gigantic. So it takes the shark a good couple minutes to get that meal down but they're going for more and more elephant seal, or sorry, more and more sea lions, which are a smaller prey item with darker blood and less fat. And they disappear a lot quicker and are a lot less detectable. Mm. So we're seeing, so we're actually detecting fewer predations than they used to detect up here. But presumably there could be as many white sharks. There could even be more. That's what we think. It's difficult to, to pin that, that down and exactly. for certain. Exactly. So we're trying to document the, the prey items when we can. And uh, on day one, I was lucky enough to see a shark attack. And based on my observations, I suspect it was an elephant seal. Um, and then on day three, there was another one that I couldn't get over to quick enough to see. And they all think that that was probably a sea lion. But it was, it was really hard to confirm this. So so we're documenting what we can. In this regard but yeah it's really fascinating and really cool stuff out here that's very fun what a unique experience yeah, yeah. super cool when we're seeing some interesting interesting bird movements you know this being an el nino year a lot of southern southern ranging species are showing up here i've seen a brown booby and a red-footed booby here in my first week uh, so so we're like we're we're coming out of this La Nina and into El Nino cycle. Yeah. So it's what cool. what would this possibly mean in Nevada? I mean, you're making these connections in California, but you know, yeah, of course, these are huge, huge are systems connected. with big, far-ranging effects. And basically, what El Nino is is a weakening of the trade winds, which typically are pushing warm water west off of the west coast of the Americas. 
and that is causing an upwelling of cold nutrient rich water to the surface so a lot of so the in this california current which runs up and down the the coast of the us there on the west coast is very nutrient rich and a lot of seabirds um, congregate there for all the fish and everything and so what we're seeing this year with the el nino is those nutrients um, is basically warm water being pushed back so nutrient poor water and mm -hmm. so those birds that are normally congregating off the coast of South America, Mexico, for all the for all the fish that are normally there are being pushed to other places to seek out that food. So what we're seeing is, yeah, red footed booby, brown booby, that kind of thing. What that means further inland is depending on I, th I think northern Nevada is far enough north to get some of the increased precipitation. But I think the effects further south are hotter and drier and less precip. But but in general, what you're seeing is southern birds coming north. And so to tie that back to Nevada, we had our state's first royal turn show up in northern Nevada at Mason Valley Wildlife Management Area, which is in Lyon County, about an hour south of Reno, give or take. And so weird, weird things like that. And so Southern Nevada, Lake Mead is certainly likely to see some of these interesting species as well. I don't know if you've been out there lately to see anything, but maybe you'll mm. see a swallowtail go. Mm. And there's things can show up at Lake Mead, that's for sure. It has a little bit of a track record. It has a little bit of a track record of attracting interesting birds from warmer waters off of the Pacific or most likely the Gulf of California, aka the Sea of Cortez. So I think we can think of this as, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the system or the mechanisms and causation of El Nino versus La Nina is you have some years or multiple years in a row where you have lots of mixing of ocean water, which brings that cold water up to the surface, which has more capacity to hold oxygen and nutrients. And that's going to translate into more, you know, foundational baseline, you know, planktonic small organisms at the surface, which are feeding all the small fish, the birds, the pinnipeds, the whales and the dolphins, all of that. They do well off of California when there is a lot of that mixing. And what you're saying is we're going to have less of that mixing this year. And so we should expect different seabirds coming from different places. Less of those tube noses maybe that will be off of cold water. Um, they may go elsewhere, but we might see more boobies coming up uh, into parts of the Pacific. Maybe we see more creveries or Guadalupe merlets coming into Southern California um in the next few years right like they're just going to shift a little bit yeah so that's, that's what you're saying displaced because of food shortages where they're used to finding it basically that's right and so that's that has big downstream effects for the climate here because of course la nina and el nino these are big global systems they really do influence and drive um the weather all across the planet and for us here tuning in, presumably mostly from the Mojave and the Great Basin Deserts in Nevada, what I'm hearing is that uh, we might be expecting less precipitation and uh, longer periods with heat. And so we need to be like aware of that. And um, also that will, might dictate what the birds are doing a little bit more. 
Yeah. Have you been seeing any any evidence to support that around in and around Las Vegas? You said you've been having a, a hot couple weeks down there, eh? Yeah, you mean like hot temperature wise or hot yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> hot burning? <laughs> yeah, well um, tell it's me. Yeah, <laughs> it's been warm. Yeah. Temperature wise, like the climate, it seems to be on the warmer side. I know that we had uh, the hottest September on record, so I'm sure that uh, October has been especially warm too. And so that's has me thinking, you know, that's kind of alarming and it's going to affect everything, including the birds. Um, so that's kind of always in the background there, uh, this, this warming planet and how it's going to affect everything. So October has been warm. And then with the birds themselves, yeah, it's been pretty exciting. I haven't gotten out there as much as I have in the past. Uh, but I've been appreciating from afar many of the species that people are turning up. Um, there, there's always a great chance of coming across rare or unusual species in September and October here. Um, if you go to the right places at the right times and you're looking, you will be rewarded eventually with, you know, a chestnut-sided warbler or a prothonotary warbler or, um, you know, an, an interesting species of songbird. Yeah, it seems like maybe the that had. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, well, no, it's it's definitely happened. A lot of people have turned things up and there are a lot of birders looking. There are more birders than ever, it seems here. Um, there are a lot of like really skilled birders who seem really good at finding things, like knowing how to look for them and being pretty successful. And uh, a lot of people with cameras, you know, like a lot of people taking photos of things and showing groups and like, Lots of stuff are turning up. And um, so I don't know what the connections are between many of these birds and climate. Um, there are these other variables that are definitely contributing to people finding lots of birds. Um, most of those that I've just mentioned, but uh, definitely a fun fall for for birders here. Like there's always something to look at. There's like a pretty crazy week where prothonotary warbler, Nelson's sparrow, Prothonotary, maybe I mentioned that already. A couple Tennessee warblers and red-eyed vireo. There's and, a prairie warbler in there too, eh? Yeah, I think in Pranigit. Yeah. Um, we had a yellow-throated in northern Nevada. Wow, that's yeah. yeah, it's a sixth state record. But yeah, wow. I think by this point in the fall, it seems like the bulk of the numbers of our warblers and other neotropical migrants have moved through. And now we're getting like the real weirdos, the real outliers by by this point in the fall. The truly unusual things are lingering and, and trickling through. Like what? Well, I think this is a mind. good yeah, well, this is a good time of year to be on the lookout for maybe a tropical kingbird or uh you know, um when else showed thick up that kingbird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A thick billed yeah. kingbird. I think that was a November. I think our previous state records are November for that one. Yeah, late October, November. Yeah, I mean, fork-tailed flycatcher, scissor-tailed flycatcher, yep. big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tyrannity, like the some of the larger flycatchers, you know, the kingbirds, scissor-tailed and fork-tailed, those big flycatchers do have the propensity in October to, to move the wrong direction. <laughs> and they can show up on both coasts uh, the Pacific and the Atlantic, pretty far up there. Um, According to my eBird rare bird alerts, Massachusetts just had a fork-tailed. Yeah, that's not surprising. Uh, they, they, the New England and like even Southeast Canada, Nova Scotia, they get these types of things. 
And apologies if you can hear my radio crackling in the background. I've got my buddy stationed up on the lighthouse reporting uh, bird movements. We've got a bit of a wave day today where there's a lot of a lot of passerines on the move. So I've got the radio on in case anything good shows up. He just thank, got- thank everyone that goes to show Ned's uh, commitment to doing this podcast because he could be out there really enjoying some really fun birding, and he decided to come inside and he's getting radio calls about what he's missing. So. You know the level of commitment needed for that. Um, let's let's keep rolling, man. Um, yeah. So let's tie. I want. I'm interested in the invasion of red-breasted mm-hmm. nuthatches that has been super widespread mm-hmm. this fall. And I mean, out here we've had mul- even out here on the southeast Farallon Island, thirty miles out to sea, we've had multiple red-breasted nuthatches every day since August 18th. Yesterday was the first day since August 18th. We had zero red-breasted nuthatches recorded on the island. And I know that's been pretty widespread in Nevada. I saw that in a lot of the lower elevation migrant hotspots that I was checking before I headed out here. Um, yeah. What's up? Why? Where to, where to begin? Yeah. Depend so, on the nuthatches. <laughs> yeah. Where to begin with them? Well, let me start here. Um, the the red-breasted nuthatch is similar to many species of finches in that they will every few years move into areas in numbers that they hadn't previously been in for the the years prior. So this is called eruption. And so this is going to be a movement pattern that is similar to migration, but unlike with land birds that we're usually accustomed to like that north to south south to north trend this is driven by slightly different incentives to find food because the food that these nuthatches and these finches are usually going after are crops of cone bearing plants so pine seeds spruce seeds um we're, we're talking about those so like coniferous pine trees most of the time or what these birds are primarily feeding on. Of course, they can eat other things, but they want to be in areas that have high crops and different regions where these plants are found can have really good years in some areas and then in others have a very bad year for cone production. And so these birds don't know that Um, maybe there's some predictive ability that they have that we don't know about yet. Like we're learning what viries are able to do in detecting like hurricanes in the future uh, somehow. Um, If you're not familiar with any of that, look it up. There are a couple of really interesting articles uh, for those listening. Um, So like birds are able to do really incredible things in, in including potentially predicting what food is going to be like in the future based off of weather and climate that they can somehow perceive and sense. These nuthatches are going to be looking for different familiar cone-bearing seeds for them to feed on for the next few months and throughout the year. And so what's likely happening is you have, in some parts of the range, like not a lot of food availability. And so they're going to disperse and they're going to be moving across valleys and into other mountain ranges looking for their preferred food choice. And they're presumably hoping for a really bumper crop somewhere. So they're going to be moving across the landscape. Sometimes it'll be north and south. Sometimes it's east to west. Um, There's evidence that suggests that many finches will move north 
uh, during the winter time. So the opposite direction we'd expect them to do, but they're just going to where the food is. And all of these birds are adapted to cold weather. So getting out of a cold place isn't so much what's driving them. It's the availability of food, which can be absent on some years in some areas or plentiful uh, the next year, uh, which is way less predictive than with other songbirds. So that's the idea behind how finches, nuthatches, a couple species of jays, a couple species of woodpeckers move across the landscape. Um, but with red-breasted nuthatches specifically, yes, we are indeed getting a lot of them in the valleys here. Um, I had one outside of my apartment complex, uh, just yanking away, giving its, you know, constant nasal call. And I could hear it. It was calling from a mulberry tree. So I think they're here possibly because it could be like a natural movement or they could be desperate. And so I think uh, a question to ask is what is normal eruption? Like what is a normal cyclical movement for these birds that is based off of a relatively normal cycle of cone production across a big landscape? But what also might be these birds responding to a situation where we've had many years of forest fires and there's just less food around. And so as they go erupt and disperse, what if they get to a destination that would have had crops, but that area just burnt down, right? Like that has to be happening to some degree. Their options are diminishing. And I wonder if these birds are under a little bit of stress. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's certainly going to be the case for a lot of these birds. I think it's hard to say, you know, like these normal natural cycles of uh, like, so I guess what we're getting at is a lot of these cone bearing trees are masting species where they produce bumper crops of nuts and, and or cones in some years compared to others. And this is driven by normal variation in, in climate, temperature, precipitation, that kind of thing, versus these unnatural disturbances like fire or or other things or in what case is a is a shifting climate gonna increase the gap between these mast years and that's gonna further stress these birds and cause more unnatural movements mm. and i think it's gonna be really hard to separate that out and i think looking at the species that are affected like some species have this natural propensity for more long distance movement versus some species that are truly more sedentary and when you start to see some of these more sedentary species on the move could hint at some more local local disturbances more related to stress than natural systems. And I don't know that I've necessarily observed anything that can suggest one way or the other. Um, but uh, I really didn't get a chance to get up into the mountains as much as I was hoping to later later in the season this year. I don't know if you've uh, observed anything like that. I mean, mostly what I'm seeing is red-breasted nuthatches and and they are, they seem to move a good bit every year. You do seem to see some in lowland riparian areas, but exactly what to attribute those numbers we're seeing this year to, that's that's the a harder question. Is it a combination of things? You know, are, there, are they being driven by unnatural stressors and in addition, some natural stressors or what? Yeah, hard, hard to say what exactly is is driving that with limited observations, I guess. I don't know if you've seen anything more. Yeah, it, it goes to show the limits of science and the caution of science, right? Because like we, I think intuitively, like we, we know that there is 
a disruption caused by all of the wildfires that have removed the habitat for these birds. And so they're moving around and have less options. I think we know that, but like to the, to the degree that it just, that seems to be the rational, logical, you know, thing to conclude, but we can't prove it. And that's one of the nice things about science is that like, you have to find that limitation and accept that these are the facts that you get. And because we're just, you know, we, uh, a, a very global scientific community of people coming together and putting uh, the best ideas together and like doing good research and talking about that research, we have a pretty good idea of how birds move across the world, but we're just learning. And we're learning at a time where they're starting to do things that are not so normal, right? And so like our baseline of understanding is shifting. And, you know, you and I were talking before this, how amazing it is that there's so many new birders coming into, into birding and what they're coming into when they're observing birds for the first time, maybe in this year or two or three years ago, they're observing the amount of birds and the distribution of birds as they are now, which has shifted. Um, if we're looking at like old Christmas bird count data, for example, or talking to people that have been doing this for decades, they'll tell you about how many species were around and how few people there were to actually detect them. Uh, but people were still finding lots of stuff out there. And um, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind, especially for us teachers, uh, to be talking about how different the landscape is versus what it was when it was fairly, you know, quote unquote, normal. The baseline is shifting. And like, we need to just be aware of that. We've got so many more people birding than, than we used to making these observations. And it's so great to have such a supportive community and all these channels of communication to get new birders in the loop and to validate some of these observations and experiences and really incorporate them into what's actually going on. Definitely. And that's one of the exciting things about this, this moment. Um, there are so many people that are becoming interested and community science, citizen science is becoming actually quite helpful. And you know, in preparation for this podcast episode, I was researching red-breasted nuthatches a little bit more and found out that Cornell's project, Project Feeder Watch, actually helped in the understanding of red-breasted nuthatch populations uh, during and after eruptive years because they'll heavily go to different feeders, but they'll do that when they're erupting into different places. And so in some areas, they're just absent. In other years, they can be common or abundant. Uh, depends on the year and what their normal food is doing. And what they found through this was that red-breasted nuthatch numbers have actually been increasing, uh, believe it or not. Um, that seemed to be news to me, um, but they also found that there is a big reduction in population after a eruptive year, right? That makes sense because it is it is really risky for the bird to go do what they do, but they have to, because they're, they're obviously looking for food that isn't where they just came from. And there is a reduction in the population on those years following, but there is the ability for them to bounce back. And we need to remember that these birds do have that ability if we give them a shot.
Yeah, well, and that makes sense with all the increased competition for resources too. If there is such a burst in there, such a boom in their population and there, there's just so many of them seeking the same re resources while at the same time there's a decrease in the, <laughs> the availability of these resources that, yeah, maybe we're going to see a lot of nuthatches in a lot of cool places and that's a fun observation for a lot of people, but it might not necessarily mean a good thing overall for the birds. This could be one of these cases where I think I've talked about this before, this whole birder bias where seeing the bird is good. It's exciting to see the bird, but seeing it in these places, in these numbers may not actually spell good news for them. Yeah, it and like it could be an indication of something going on in the environment that is alarming, or it could be a normal thing. Like we just don't know, but we have to. Well, I that's, think yeah, exactly. And that's the cool thing about having this very engaged birding community, this connected mm -hmm. community, these cap capabilities of documenting things with cameras and phone recordings and real-time observations, real-time updating. Like eBird is the classic community science platform where everyone is submitting their observations in real time. And you're able to consult that and get a better idea of what's going on than you would be able to get from your, your Sibley's field guide or something. And of course, I love my Sibley's field guide. It's a fantastic resource, but it doesn't have that ability to capture this stuff in real time, which is some of the, some of the cool stuff that we're seeing with this connectedness and technology. And it might be one of the rare occasions where I'm speaking highly of technology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I listened to this great interview. It, it just happened to be playing when I was getting in and out of the car. And it happened to be Jane Goodall, an interview with Jane Goodall. I think it was on a local radio station. Um, we're, we're playing a, rec a recording of it. And she actually, you know, despite all of the challenges that are going on out there and like the real reasons to recognize loss and and like seeing species go extinct uh so quickly you know it, it can be really difficult but she actually said that she's hopeful for the future of how humans approach the environment and when asked why she said it was because of the proliferation and advancement of citizen science uh she thought it was really encouraging that so many people are are getting involved uh it 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 goes to show that people are changing their minds and wanting to take action and finding new and innovative ways to take action. So, you know, I don't know what's out there. I'm not plugged into everything. Like there's so little that I'm aware of out there, but uh, I keep going because I think there are enough other people out there that care and they're looking for solutions and they're going to find things that I could never think of. Yeah. And this widespread availability of information is only going to help that. Yeah, the totality of human knowledge exists on our fingertips now, you know, I just got to yeah. choose wisely. Yeah, um, and I think both you and I are, are plugged into some of these community science efforts to varying degrees in, in varying ways. I know uh, one of our big ones that we've talked about on the show before is the, the GBBO, Great Basin Bird Observatory, Pinion J Community Science Program. I think we've both also helped out with some of the shorebird surveys that the National Audubon is working with uh, with Point Blue on, actually. So, so both of these are are things that uh, that we're both doing in our lives to to contribute to this body of knowledge. You know, uh, you you went out on some shorebird surveys this fall, huh? Uh, yeah, I got out there. We Red Rock Audubon Society we're participating in the shorebird surveys. Uh, we have been for the last few years. And it just makes sense for Audubon chapters to take the lead on that um, in terms of like volu finding volunteers and recruiting volunteers for 
the actual surveys and then we collect those surveys and then we send them off to the compilers and then they're going to plug all that data in and um you know take a look at what statistically is relevant uh, for shorebird conservation and they'll inform us and tell us what we could do uh, about the shorebird habitat in our location so um, this is a way for us to be involved in shorebird conservation where we go collect the science, somebody else interprets that science, that information, and it helps to inform our decisions as an Audubon chapter. So very, very important stuff to have those connections and that science going on in your own backyard, especially at your birding locations. Because you, you like some of those have lots of birds. You surveyed hmm. some of the same spots in the in the spring too, right? I personally didn't. I did Bowman Reservoir in the spring, and then I did the Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve uh, this fall and was able to see some short-billed dowagers really close, which was fun because usually we get long-billed there and not a lot of short-builds. Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, very cool. It's cool doing the doing the repeated visits to these sites and getting that sort of that sense of ownership and connection with these sites and observing the changes from season to season, from year to year. And sort of what is like we were talking about before these shifting baselines, like what is what is normal and what is related to water levels being too high and there's no habitat. So the birds are more dispersed or what is what what should we expect to see in a normal year? And it's pretty cool getting to visit some of these sites again and again to get a feel for that. For sure. And what I learned looking at maps from all the locations that are surveyed across the West, basically from the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains to west of the Rockies is that the Salton Sea in South Central California and the Great Salt Lake are incredibly important places, especially for fallow ropes and avocets at the um, the Great Salt Lake. So I was able to like visually see the importance of these locations for shorebirds. And I think if more and more people see that, that would be a good thing because I think both of those do not necessarily have a a great uh, long distance outlook. I think they're both receding and uh, pretty pretty rapidly. The water levels are dropping there. Both of those both of those critical stopover sites. Yes, yes. It's just all the stuff that we got to be aware of. I think um, to speak on behalf of what's going on with these birds. Yeah, I think, um, and I know Nevada has a lot of these wetland habitats that are sort of dispersed all across the Great Basin. There's a lot of playas, there's a lot of sinks, there's a lot of a lot of marshy habitat that is in rural remote Nevada that a lot of Nevada birders are probably not aware of, and if they are aware of, probably rarely get to visit. So um, with uh, with years like we saw this, this past spring with high water levels, I suspect that's where a lot of our our shorebirds that we were not seeing at the normal spots were being, uh, were stopping over at some of these other spots. And so highlighting the, highlighting the value of some of those places, in addition to these larger, larger bodies of water that we all know and love. I was surprised to hear from you probably last year when we we're talking about shorebirds in the state, just how many dowagers move through Northern Nevada in the spring. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, like I don't have the uh, I don't have the numbers with me here, but it's it's some insane percentage of the population of long-billed dowagers or the world population. Like, wow. Yeah, Carson Lake. Uh, for those of you not familiar, is in uh, just south of the town of Fallon, about an hour hour and a half east of Reno, and that is the end of the Carson River. 
but that that lake filled up this year for the first time in a long time and they actually had to close the property to visiting birders because the roads were all flooded it was a a full full lake as opposed to a complex of wetland habitat like it usually is but when I when I was birding there, uh, some some Hudsonian godwits were reported there at the end of August, and visiting there, I mean, there were just thousands of long-billed dowitchers. We had a flock of fifty lesser yellowlegs fly over us while we were looking at a good forty more in the wetland wow. in front of us. Just insane numbers of birds at Carson Lake. I've never seen flocks of Wilson snipe before like I've seen at Carson Lake. I think at one point, I think I counted a flock of 30 Wilson snipe at one point there. Just insane numbers of birds that you just just bend your mind <laughs> to understand. Oh, I'll have to I'll have to dig out some of those numbers that uh, some of the actual stats of the usage of this place. But it's seriously impressive. Doesn't even sound like it could be in Nevada. Yeah, it's it's Seems unreal. Like and uh, let me tell you, some of the worst mosquito experiences I've had outside of Alaska have been in Nevada. <laughs> oh, I believe it. There were clouds trying to carry us away when we were looking for those those godwits. <laughs> I I can believe that. Um, I was surprised the first time I worked in Western Colorado, which is fairly similar, you know, climate and and plants. Um, yeah, getting into some really awful mosquito clouds like along like a braided you know sort of like willow stream bordering sage it was as bad as any place i've been in florida for yeah. sure yeah braided streams that sounds like alaska <laughs> yes. yeah yeah anyway i don't want to like relive yeah, that yeah not to uh get, get ourselves sidetracked here but uh yeah, community science is very cool and mm. <laughs> well, I'll circle back with our community science, our eruptive and disruptive movements, mm. and uh, pinion jays. And so I'm excited to see what we see this fall with pinion jay movement. But I did get to do a bit of cone seeking this fall, and I saw a bit more than I did last year, which is good. Still not, still nothing close to a mast year. What I did see were a ton of cones that look like they will be good for next year. So pinion pine has a two-year production cycle where it initiates production of next year's cones this year. Mm. Little tiny round cones on the tips of the branches that you can see right now. And so as long as we don't have a very hot, dry summer, we should see a pretty good crop of pinion pine cones next year. But what we saw last winter with the dearth of pine cones pinion pine cones was pinion jays showing up at feeders in lowland riparian areas in higher elevation forests dominated by other conifers like limber pine so i'm very interested to see what uh what will what will be reported um this fall for pinion jay movement mm. out in eastern nevada training some folks up on the protocol out in elko and in ely getting some more volunteers on board so it's very cool to see that project growing and the the scope of information gathered increasing. We've got Colorado pretty well covered. We've got some folks in Oregon jumping in. We've got Arizona, New Mexico pretty well covered. So, and that's been since the, well, I guess, beginning of 2022. So we've got some pretty good coverage and ability to document trends that way now, which is very cool. Excellent. That's great. I'm glad more people are using that tool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's very cool. 
you know, monitoring these animals as they respond to changes in the environment is something we can all do. And uh, what I like about the new tools that are coming out now is that they're species specific. So you just need to be familiar with that species and maybe like some familiar ones. So like with a pinion jay, it helps to know what is a woodhouses or a California scrub jay uh, and not a pinion jay. You know, there's there's that, but um, that's nothing that can't be solved in a couple minutes of like putting attention on it. Um, yeah, and that's kind of the point is that it's pretty easy to do however you yeah. want to do it. It's opportunistic. You just log sightings as you're hiking. And if you see them, log them. If you don't see them, you can log that too. And that has value to us as well. I or, use it whenever I'm out in the appropriate habitat. Yeah. Well, Super easy, you. everyone. Yeah. And if you want to do it in a more systematic way, you can, you know, outline an area that you like to go hiking and you can just go, excuse me, go inspect it and investigate it in different ways. Go through, check out different access points, different canyons and document when you see them and when you don't see them and you put together all that information on the on the map view on the website and you can really get a good feel of what's going on in a given area mm. and you can get to know certain flocks and know where they like to hang out and what they do in the winter versus in the summer start to see the flocks growing in size in the winter and then see maybe get to see where they're nesting in the spring and see the flock uh, shrink in size as they as they splinter off into their family groups for nesting there's such a cool bird and there's so much to learn about them. They're, they're super neat. And if you, if one were to do what you just described, you would see some cool places and you definitely learn a lot about this really interesting and charismatic bird. So you get me psyched. I, I want to get out there. We're dealing right now with a lot of road closures into pinion jay habitat. So we had the big storms back in August and September here in Las Vegas, we had a hurricane uh, come through. Hillary it was, I think, a tropical storm by the time it got into the region. And we had a couple of days of like really solid rain. So a lot of our access roads are completely washed out uh, in the Spring Mountains, for example. So just not a lot of opportunity to see Pinion Jay. Um, but I bet if somebody went to Lovell Canyon, they could run into them for those that are tuning in in Southern Nevada. Yeah, there's other places you can check too. It's just uh, Nevada is a tough place to get around. The roads aren't always easy to traverse. <laughs> mm. The Sheep Range has pinion jays. The McCulloughs have pinion jays. They're just a little farther away and up some rougher roads. Mm -hmm. That's but, right, man. I think we're oh. getting towards the end of our time and we should probably, uh, probably think about some closing words here. Cool. I got one for you. I got a question. What you got? Uh, what do you, I mean, in, other than the islands that you're hanging out at, which are just amazing birding locations. What are you excited about? What's coming up for you that you're psyched Gull on? season. Gulls, <laughs> they're coming. <laughs> Gull season. Gulls are coming to a city park near you. <laughs> and spotted toys are coming to Southeast Farallon Island. <laughs> I, I heard that on the radio. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, cool. What, what's your, what's the gull that you're hoping for this winter in the Reno area? Glaucus, Glaucus, Glaucus gull, that big white Arctic bruiser. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the biggest. Yeah. Big yep. light eye, very light primaries. Yep. If you see a big pale gull that looks like it wants to eat you, it's probably mm -hmm. a Glaucus gull. 
<laughs> yeah, man. What a hulking bird. Yeah. Ooh, okay. That's a good one. I do love a good Glaucus gall sighting. Yeah. What's uh, what about you? What are you looking forward to for the, the coming season in Southern Nevada? I'm excited for Christmas bird counts. I think they're, they're a ton of fun. Uh, we always, somebody turns up something interesting during these counts or around these counts and uh bohemian waxwing wasn't found during the christmas bird count last year wow, it was found around in the vicinity of it uh right around then and i just remember going up there a number of times and just having such a a fun time in that like that post-holiday glow that everyone has you know just everyone's a little bit more excited there's just that little bit of life in everyone things just kind of feel more positive during that time during the holidays and I just love that stuff. You know, the yeah, conversations CBCs are a great time. I'm definitely looking forward to some of those myself. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm excited for like just any oddballs that show up in the wintertime. Like it's always like fun to see what's attempting to spend the winter. Yeah, totally. Bad news for them. Like that hooded or uh, hooded warbler a couple winters ago at the bird preserve. Don't know what happened to it. But... Yeah. You can get some cold snaps down there. Warblers don't mm -hmm. like that. Nope. Well, hey, I suppose that's about all the time we've got for today. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to drop us a line wherever you find your podcasts and tell all your friends about us. See you next time.